Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and in today's World in 30 Minutes we're discussing the current state of the debate on the British membership of the European Union. For months we've been speculating about what was going to happen, what kind of deal David Cameron would manage to negotiate with his partners in uh, other member states and when the referendum would be and now we finally know we're looking forward to a referendum on the 23rd of june the starting gun has been fired and there's much more clarity both on what's happening within the government and the conservative party and who is on what sides of the uh, of the the uh, who's going to be in the remain camp who's going to be in the leave camp secondly we now know what the deal is and what the consequences of it are going to be in other european countries and we've had the first set of skirmishes in the great attempt to win over the British public to the different sides and most interestingly it's been about foreign policy so what we're going to do in this podcast is going to talk to three wonderful commentators on these topics first up is Sam Coates who's the deputy political editor at the Times who's going to explain to us how the cookie has crumbled in domestic politics and which side different cabinet ministers are and what that means second up we talked to Nick Whitney, one of the co-directors of the European Power Programme and also a former head of the European Defence Agency and a very senior official in the UK Ministry of Defence before he went to Brussels, about the foreign policy aspects of the crisis, which is something Nick's been writing about a lot on. You can see some of that on our website, www.ecfr.eu. And finally, we'll be talking to Susie Dennison, the other co-director of the European Power Programme, who has been watching how the negotiations have worked in all 28 member states. She's been running the European Renegotiation Scorecard. So, Sam, let's go to you first. How has Westminster reacted to the deal? So, Downing Street has been really quite taken aback by the scale of the Tory revolt over David Cameron's uh, deal with Brussels last, um, last Friday night. Um, if you talk to them back last October, they were expecting somewhere in the region of 70, maybe up to 100 Tory MPs to come out uh, against David Cameron's deal. Um, unfortunately for them, uh, it's now looking like somewhere between 130 and 140 MPs just n- nudging under half uh, of the 330-strong parliamentary party uh, will now come out for Brexit um, and uh, campaign against the Prime Minister rejecting um, what he says and what he negotiated. Uh, which will be difficult for the party in terms of its long-term future. Now, um, what, what are the reasons for that? Well, first of all, there was a lot of criticism in the media at the deal that David Cameron struck, uh, and that convinced quite a lot of Tory MPs not to go with it. But really, it comes down to the fact that two big cabinet beasts, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, who attend political cabinets, um, uh, both decided to prompt for Brexit. Now, both in some senses were a surprise. Michael Gove has long, long been a supporter of leaving the European Union and a, and a huge critic of the 28-member uh, bloc. Um, however, he is also very close uh, to the uh, Prime Minister, uh, one of the uh, people in his, uh, in his inner circle. Indeed, their children go to the same school, and Michael wrestled for a long time whether or not he could uh, uh, go a different way on this critical issue uh, to the Prime Minister. 
he decided in the end that he had the principle above uh, personal relations uh, and, uh, and, 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 and jumped uh, for Brexit. Um, Boris Johnson was also a surprise, but perhaps, perhaps different reasons. Boris, many people had assumed, uh, uh, would support uh, the Remain campaign. He is much more culturally uh, 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 an inner, as it were, um, uh, son of a European commissioner uh, and uh, somebody who's worked and lived in Brussels for many years and, um, uh, and indeed had given some indications to Downing Street that he would, he would back Remain. But in the end, he decided to do the reverse. Um, uh, he insists this is not about future leadership ambitions. And, and to be fair to him, you can trace a line of opposition to the European Union. He'd set a number of hurdles to David Cameron in the renegotiation that David Cameron was never going to clear. He wanted caps on migration policy. He wanted uh, uh, to end the supremacy of the European Court of Justice, which is frankly incompatible with ongoing membership, and uh, even wanted common agricultural policy reform to be part of the British renegotiation, something which the French would take right at uh, and would never get off the ground, and indeed David Cameron didn't even ask for. So for all of those reasons, uh, Boris Johnson decided, ultimately after a late-night dinner with uh, 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 between Michael Gove and, uh, and Boris Johnson, they both decided to jump for out. And that has provided intellectual and political cover uh, for dozens more Tory MPs to uh, campaign against the Prime Minister uh, than, than, um, uh, than, than was expected last October. That means that we're going to have the, the, the spectacle of things like the Justice Secretary on the radio forensically picking apart the Prime Minister's, uh, uh, the legal aspects of the Prime Minister's deal and, and Boris Johnson raising warnings about the threats of migration. And that is a very uncomfortable place for the Prime Minister to be in. Um, however, what we have seen this week from David Cameron is that he is uh, back in campaign mode. He's on quite good form, to be honest, uh, uh, at a series of rallies and events around the country, including a, uh, a rally in, in, in London on Wednesday uh, at the ICA. He was back on the kind of form that you saw in the latter stages of the British general election campaign last year. Sleeves rolled up, uh, articulate, making clear points for, um, for, for in. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and I think his... Uh, is, is relatively upbeat about the... Uh, 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 and he has the ability to use the whole of the British government machine for the next two or so months, right up until 28 days before the vote, um, which can also be put to the purposes of campaigning to stay inside the European Union. And that's a pretty heavyweight thing to have on your side because it means all government press officers, the Downing Street media machine, and this, um, uh, uh, will all essentially uh, uh, be articulating the case for staying in the European Union. So... So, so, so I think that there are strong Tory divisions and it's unclear what the political impact is going to be after the referendum. But I also think the jury is out on how much difference David, um, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove will actually make in the coming debate. I think the jury is out. It could be a lot. But, but, but as, as of yet, uh, we haven't seen any evidence uh, that it is. As it were, that's a, that's a known unknown in this debate. The unknown unknown is quite what the Labour Party are going to do. Now, in order for the Remain side to win this referendum. They need to uh, uh, attract shy Tory women switchers, but, it in, but also ensure, which is why the Tories are so important, but also ensure that the Labour Party and Labour supporters get out the vote on referendum stage in the 23rd. And that is, a, is, is potentially quite a big challenge. You've got a party that is, um, is itself uh, a little split, um, uh, although something like 215 out of the 230 
uh, Labour MPs have signed up for uh, in. Um, uh, you have a leadership in the form of Jeremy Corbyn and, and Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, who are and always have been really out of. And whenever Jeremy Corbyn makes a statement about Europe, it is laced with criticism of the European Union and, and, and lists things that he would rather uh, had been changed during the recent renegotiation, making it quite clear that he is unhappy with the status quo. So you've got a, a, a Labour campaign run by uh, former Home Secretary Alan Johnson that is only unenthusiastically backed by the, by the party machine. And many Labour MPs that I'm talking to are worried about Labour being seen to too aggressively campaign to stay in because they fear that it's not an issue that their constituents are particularly uh, uh, enthused about, uh, and they worry that um, if they fight too strongly uh, within uh, and with the Prime Minister, it can only really ultimately do them political damage. And so you're, you're likely to have something that looked like the way that Labour treated the AV referendum back in 2011, which is saying the that there's a fourth change... Uh, yes, the alternative vote referendum when, when there was an effort to move away from the first part of the place, traditional Westminster House of Commons electoral system, where Labour sort of supported reform in all but name, but really didn't do anything to do it, and, and, and that's part of the reason that that vote was lost. So there is, a lot, there is a lot of nervousness about quite how strongly Labour will get out its vote um, in, a, in, a, in, in a special that will see Britain going to the polls barely a month after very important elections for Jeremy Corbyn's future in the, in, the, in the shape of the London mayoralty, the Scottish um, Parliament elections, uh, and um, increasingly importantly, the Welsh Assembly elections, where Labour, um, there's just a possibility that Labour could lose control of the Welsh Assembly, along with uh, the Northern Ireland parties who are across at the date of the, of the referendum, because they too uh, have the, um, uh, the MLA uh, up for election as well, plus a whole load of police and crime commissions, all of which, if you're Jeremy Corbyn, uh, are, are, are probably more... In, important to your existential future than the EU referendum uh, just over a month later. So you've got no you've got known knowns, you've got unknown unknowns and and, and, and and the political situation is quite feels quite feeble still. What about outside of the Westminster bubble sound? How do you think these kind of machinations within the parties are actually going to affect public opinion? Well um, we're we're at a very early stage when it comes to um, to trying to gauge public opinion, and, and, and there have been a lot of high-profile criticisms of, um, uh, for instance, a, 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 a opinion polling uh, uh, after the general election disaster, where they called it Red Miliband and David Cameron won. So I preface all of my remarks with I'm not I'm not sure quite um, whether I would put my mortgage on uh, on, on what the opinion polls are, are, are saying. But, but but we at the Times have been uh, uh, partnered with YouGov, and uh, 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 and to my mind. Um, uh, YouGov currently have the rate at pretty much neck and neck, with somewhere around a quarter of a uh, quarter of people saying they're undecided. So, so clearly, uh, a, a big scope for it going either way. But we've been monitoring public opinion pretty consistently, and we found that um, there there does seem to be evidence in our polling that David Cameron and the way that he negotiated a deal and now firmly backed his reform package will have an impact on public opinion. The public seem to have taken note of the fact that the Prime Minister uh, uh, negotiated changes and, and, and now says that they are a, a comprehensive uh, reason for staying inside Europe. Uh, and, and once he had done that, public opinion shifted more in his favour. And I think that that, that that combined with some evidence that what some people call Project Fear, which is a, 
the, the attempt to warn about all the things that might go on if Britain, if Britain attempted to leave the European Union, the uh, economic damage, the potential security implications. There is also evidence in our polling that suggests that is beginning to work and work quite quickly. As people now say, unlike three weeks ago, that staying inside the European Union, they believe, is the more uh, uh, safe option and leaving the European Union is the riskier option. So I think Project Fear is working. David Cameron seems to be having an effect and the race is, race is more or less neck and neck. Um, but uh, uh, there are some difficulties um, uh, when you compare what online polls say to telephone polls. And I, I wouldn't quite yet, as I say, um, uh, be 100% certain what the headline result is going to look like. And we are, we are very early on in this campaign. But I think those two underlying factors should give the Remain fight some cause for So, Nick, why don't we go to you to talk about the foreign policy implications of this? David Cameron uh, has turned the debate into one about risks, what people have been calling Project Fear. And there's both fear on the economic front and the dangers to economic security. But national security has also emerged as one of the key battlegrounds in it. Can you talk a bit about some of the things that people have been saying since the referendum debate started here? Well, I suppose one of the uh, most interesting early developments of this week was the appearance in the Telegraph of a of a letter signed by 13, or as it may be, apparently 12, top brass, um, uh, explaining that um, membership of the EU was, was a good thing um, and was uh, would bolster our security. Um, I think this, in a way, it's it's quite surprising because there's really not been much love lost um, amongst MOD top brass for a very long time. MOD is the Ministry of Defence. Ministry of Defence, UK Ministry of Defence, for the um, for the whole idea of European defence. Um, we've been occupied with a, a couple of um, serious, if unsuccessful, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and on the whole, um, the British defence establishment has regarded um, the whole idea of, of European defence efforts, crisis management operations in Africa, that kind of thing, as a, as a bit of a vanity project and not really um, serious defence stuff. So they've never um, really particularly wanted uh, Britain to play a part in it. On the other hand, I think they, uh, as the signatories of the letter say, they do realize that, um, you know, though NATO may play the primary role in, um, in keeping Mr. Putin in his place, the fact is that the EU has done some um, rather useful ancillary things, which, or more than ancillary things, which NATO can't do. Um, in terms of exercising economic restraints and sanctions on on Putin and uh, influencing the whole outcome of the Iran negotiation, which is very much a feather, if you like, in the EU's foreign policy cap. So in a world which is um, not necessarily defined by lines of tanks facing each other in the center of Europe, um, I think it's interesting that the the top brass have come to recognize that an EU that acts together can actually complement the old traditional Atlanticist um, view of what makes for a secure, uh, secure Europe. And of course, in that they're getting they're getting themselves um, thoroughly endorsed by Washington, who have uh, now. I mean, it was Obama last year. It's recently been Kerry. Um, 
the U.S. special trade representatives been put up to tell Britain in blunt terms that if it thinks it can leave and have a bilateral trade deal with the U.S., it can think again. I mean, the Obama administration is making it very plain that it wants a strong Britain to remain within a strong Europe. And given the extent to which our security does, after all, ultimately rest on the transatlantic alliance, um, I think those factors have weighed with um, quite a lot of people who, who think about defence and even even sceptical top brass. And one other little skirmish which has taken part place alongside that is the whole question of terrorism, because one of the six Eurosceptic cabinet ministers who's on the outside, Ian Duncan Smith, um, gave an interview where he said that if we stayed in the EU, we were more likely to ha- to be subject to Paris attacks. How do you think this terrorist um, question is going to play out in the British debate? Well, like so much of this debate, it's rather hard to fo- foresee. I mean, I think I, I think I have a rather clear view on how it ought to play out. And the vital thing is surely to distinguish between, um, if, you, if you're talking about control of your borders is to distinguish between um, all sorts of miscellaneous jihadis who might be pitching up trying to get into Britain and other Europeans. And what getting out of Europe would do for us is allow us to um, control and monitor the movements of other Europeans into the UK. But it would actually make the business of uh, keeping um, undesirables from the Middle East out, it would make it more difficult this brings us back to also to the skirmish that has taken place in recent days over what the implications would be for the the Calais jungle, with the Prime Minister pointing out, perhaps not very felicitously, that we could get a jungle in the UK. I don't think we'd get a jungle. Jungle is the refugee camp. With, with, uh, with, sorry, it's the... It's the um refugee reception centre, which is in, near Calais, where people are trying to get to the UK. And of course, it's full of um, Syrian amongst other refugees, some 6,000 of them, people say. And um, if you want to be um, suspicious, you can imagine that there are jihadis lurking there. But the Prime Minister pointed out that if we left the uh, Europe, the French authorities would have no incentive to continue to allow us, as they currently do, to operate our border controls on their side of the of the channel. And indeed, that was confirmed yesterday by the um, uh, local head of the French department, who um, made very aggressive noises about, we've got these 6,000 refugees milling around, the tremendous burden on us. Um, that's only because we keep them out on behalf of the Brits. If the Brits leave Europe, we'll just ship them across to Britain. And there we would have to deal with them and screen them. And if, uh, if not allow them to establish um, an informal refugee camp, I guess we'd end up having to uh, detain a lot of people. So my point, uh, the point is, I think that at the moment, when it comes to non-Europeans, we do actually have not just complete control of our borders, as complete as we can ever hope to have, but we also have the cooperation of the French in keeping would-be uh, refugees on the far side of the channel. So that's just going to get worse if we if we leave um, Europe. And I can't myself see how um, the intelligence cooperation, which is the other key piece of this, could also fail to get worse if we if we go ahead with Brexit. Um, Why do you think that would be affected? Because presumably our main intelligence relationships is the Five Eyes one, 
I mean, why would that be affected by us leaving the European Union? Our, sorry, I mean, the UK's. I think when it comes to, to terrorism in the, in the UK, as opposed to the whatever Islamic State folk may be up to in the Middle East, um, we much more important relationships are with, um, are with European intelligence services. I mean, Paris, if we're talking about the Paris attacks, the, one of the prime causes of those beyond the, the lunatics who carried it out themselves was the failure of, of um, Belgian and French uh, intelligence authorities to cooperate properly, and this is um, an eternal problem with with intelligence agencies. They hate the idea of cooperation. They have to be pushed into it and made to feel comfortable. It's a very difficult matter to get them to trust each other, and those habits are developing within Europe under the aegis of Europol and so forth. So, if we stand away from all that, I find it very difficult to see how our intelligence cooperation and our knowledge of who might be brewing plots where on the continent of Europe, which could potentially affect us, how our intelligence would not suffer. Susie, do you think that, I mean, what Nick saying is very plausible to me, but then I think we should stay in the EU. Um, how do you think um, it, those sorts of arguments are going down in the general public? Are they kind of plausible do people just see a massive refugee crisis and terrorist attacks in paris and just think we're better off away from this stuff let's build a, an even bigger deeper t um channel between us and and the rest of the continent i mean i think one of the key challenges for the referendum um campaign um both sides really is um is about um bringing a level of clarity to a lot of these discussions because I think um, that uh, for, for the general uh, public the um, uh, some, some of these questions around um, intelligence cooperation, border cooperations, the, the kind of the, the actual um, status quo um, is, 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 is seen as quite blurry. I mean I think um, that if, if uh, uh, those of us uh, who don't understand um, uh, the uh, the situation at such a detailed level are told that um, essentially uh, EU membership is about a choice between cooperation with Five Eyes or with the EU. Um, uh, then then that is actually seriously misleading uh, because it's not the two are, um, uh, the, are not mutually exclusive. Um, and effectively, what we would be doing um, in a lot of cases would be um, making a choice out of EU cooperation um, and leaving ourselves with fewer options rather than more. Um, so, um, so I think uh, you know the same goes for uh, the, the the debate around uh, the the refugee um, crisis being merged with this kind of whole debate around uh, migration um, uh, within the EU. It's very risky in the context of the campaign because. Um, there is uh, this tendency, I think, in, in, in the UK media to conflate the two issues. Um, so I think that the, in, in making the case um, uh, for, uh, making case responsibly for um, the in campaign over the coming weeks and months, um, uh, it's, it's going to be important to, to, to spell those things out um, and, uh, and, and make clear really what is at stake, because I think that hasn't come through sufficiently in the debate so far. Okay. So if we look beyond the, the British debate, because I'm sure this one that we've been having is going to run and run until the 23rd of June and uh, be interesting to see uh, which side is more convincing as it, as it kind of goes on. But if we look beyond that, 
Susie, you've been looking at how other member states uh, are viewing this. What do you think the initial fallout from the the deal is going to be? How are other member states going to play it? Have there already been some repercussions in other places? I think um, looking at the reactions around Europe, there seem to kind of be broadly four groups of states um, in terms of how they've reacted to the to the UK deal. Um, I mean, uh, the first of those um, sort of group is, is is headed up by Germany and is characterised by um, by Merkel's comment that um, the European Council had given Cameron what he needed in terms of taking um, uh, the the campaign um, to, towards the referendum forward, and that the ball is now in his court. Um, but um, but that uh, I think in in the German uh, media over the weekend, um, there has been quite a positive um, spin um, on, on the deal in some quarters, arguing that um, that actually um, uh, the what what the UK had secured was uh, was a positive step, which kind of paved the way for um, uh, an EU in which the the UK might move back um, uh, towards the to to the centre um, uh, of 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 this sort of um, newly reformed um, union, um, which would be a kind of a, a, a positive addition to the to the Franco-German motor um, and, um, and, and, and could come out well for all involved. I think the second camp um, is, uh, is, is, is characterised um, by, by what you've seen um, in France. You saw the new French Foreign Minister Jean-Marc um, Ayrault um, sort of playing down the implications of the deal, um, highlighting that certain red lines from the French side, which were notably around uh, the veto for um, uh, eurozone outs and there being no treaty change had been protected and sort of it's been presented more as a kind of damage limitation um, uh, result. Um, then the third group um, I think um, you see kind of in Italy and Spain um, as as uh, some concern about this having paved the way for a multi-speed Europe which some uh, EU member states um, didn't particularly want to see um, and also um, uh, concern about this kind of the potential that this deal has unleashed um, for other member states, um, notably Hungary, Poland, uh, and even France under a potential Front National um, president, as Marine Le Pen has, has threatened, um, pushing for um, for referendums and reforms of their own type. And you have seen um, in um, in Hungary um, this week talk about um, a referendum there on the um, on the migration uh, relocation deal. Um, so uh, so you know who knows. Um, about the extent of that threat. But then I, I think the kind of the major group, um, I was in Stockholm earlier this week, and um, uh, I think Sweden kind of typifies this, this kind of fourth reaction, is that while not all aspects of the deal were positive, and I think the kind of the bulk of the concerns are around um, the, uh, the the migration package um, uh, and uh, the kind of the Pandora's box that that's potentially opened up. Although that said, there is some interest from other member states, Germany and others, about um, exploring the potential for um, uh, restriction of welfare payments um, uh, in, in their member states too. Um, but that even though not all aspects of the deal were positive, that overall it was a price worth paying um, because ultimately uh, the price of Brexit was higher. So I guess the question now around Europe uh, for, for other Euro European leaders is seeing kind of what role they can play um, uh, that, that could be positive now, um, uh, now that the deal is done, um, other than staying out of it. So maybe we can delve into two of uh, two specific issues. So one is this kind of 
uh, blackmailed by referendum issue. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I think that was one of the um, ambivalences about the deal when we went into it. Is this about giving Britain uh, a special uh, set of opt-outs which could then lead to a competition from different populist governments to to have their own kind of special deals, which could mean that the whole EU ends up looking like Swiss cheese because there's so many holes in uh, in it, Um, versus those who are worried about this being about reforming the whole EU and and taking it into a more British direction, either by killing ever closer union or by removing rights from from workers in different places. Orban's move came very very soon after the the deal was agreed. Um how, you know how's how are people kind of responding to that. Yeah, I mean I think um that uh that it's we shouldn't we shouldn't perhaps read too much into um Orban um saying this now um straight after the Brexit deal and 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 kind of um assume that one is a direct result of the other i mean Orban in the context of the uh, the migration crisis um has been um a very difficult actor um within eu um discussions um over the past uh, over the past 6 months to a year um and i think this is a continuation of that trend um Yes, this um, this whole um, discussion. I don't think it's the deal itself so much as the the kind of the renegotiation discussion has um, created a kind of uh, a new uh, a new justification if if people are looking for it for um, for that kind of behaviour. But ultimately, I think um, that uh, the, the, the 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 deal overall um, is one which um which can be um positive uh for uh for for the eu i think um uh if uh, if the reformed eu is one in which the uk feels comfortable in um in not only staying in but playing a positive role um then i think most member states recognize that that's a good thing for everybody and um and i think that um there's a general sense ar- among nordic states um germany and others that the kind of the 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 culture um uh around uh free market around um not integration for um, integration's sake um, that the, the UK has has brought to um, uh, the EU um, over the past decades is one that they value and um, that that is is more important than the detail of um, uh, of some of the um, of some of the uh, agreements which 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 came through um, in last week's deal. So thanks, Susie. Another big question in terms of how other people respond to this is about the whole question about the legality of the deal. Um, so Michael Gove, one of the cabinet ministers who is in the out camp, has said that the deal is not irreversible and is not going to be binding on the European Court of Justice. Well, I mean, my understanding of the discussion is around whether or not um, uh, the the legally binding nature of the deal comes from it being um, in the treaties, or whether um, you take the um, uh, the council level agreement as uh, as legally binding in itself. And um, the opinions um, that the government has released over the last um, couple of days um, uh, from the attorney general, the, pre- the pre- previous attorney general, um, and others. Um, 
uh, in response to Michael Gove's allegation, have have stated quite clearly that the fact that this is um, an agreement at 28 at the EU Council level uh, means that it, um, it 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 is legally legally binding in nature. You've seen that endorsed by um, Donald Tusk um, and and others. Um, it it seems to me um, uh, to be uh, to be fairly clear cut in terms of um, the response to it um but uh but 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 clearly um this is going to be something that which is going to rumble on in the context of the uk discussion i mean i think the the, the technical point is obviously it's legally binding because it's an international treaty which has been lodged with the united nations but at the same time it's not part of the body of eu law until it gets transposed into an eu treaty so therefore if somebody takes it to the European Court of Justice and argues that it goes against the principle of non-discrimination, the European Court of Justice will have to take the international agreement into account when it's doing its, uh, when it's passing judgment, but it's not necessarily uh, bound by it. So theoretically, it could be that um, particularly the benefits uh, parts of the deal are seen to be uh, in contravention of the principle of non-discrimination and therefore could be overturned by the ECJ. So that's the, the kind of dilemma which which Michael Gove was, was uh, pointing to. And I suspect that the way that it will be dealt with in the, in the, in the debate over the next few weeks is going to be by getting people like Tusk and other member states uh, and different member states saying that this is legally binding, we're not going to overturn it. And maybe they could even go to the Court of Justice and get them to, to say that, because it would throw the whole European Union into a massive constitutional crisis if the Court of Justice did overturn this thing when there was such a, a strong political mandate from the Council and there would be a, a clash between international law and European law. Um, though European law has got primacy. So technically, Michael Gove is right. I suspect this debate will probably disappear quite soon because as we get closer to June the 23rd, most of the focus will be on whether we want to stay within the European Union or not as the UK, rather than the details of the renegotiation package. But I think it's worth remembering in this that the European Court of Justice is actually a European institution. It means that it's uh, it's raison d'etre. The whole reason that these judges sit there is to try to make the European Union work. And of course, what it has to do there, a lot of the time, is is try to keep member states and other actors in Europe uh, up to up to the mark of the commitments they've made in the successive treaties. So they are very much uh, treaty-based in their interpretations. But the reality of the current situation is, whilst you know, the British deal hovers between an intergovernmental agreement with the force of law registered at the UN and actually getting itself embedded in the next iteration of the treaty, during this period of limbo, I think we can take it that the European Court of Justice would do whatever it can to avoid being forced to um, uh, take any view at all on the, on the question of, uh, of compatibility or otherwise with the treaties, because this, in a sense, would be going against the... Uh, to to hand down any judgment which overturned the the difficultly arrived at joint will of all the member states to avert a you know hopefully to avert a, a major blow to the whole european enterprise would be just against the if i may use the expression against the whole dna of what the court of justice thinks it's there for 
And that mind-bogglingly technical issue <laughs> brings this very British <laughs> world in 30 minutes to a conclusion. We are going to have a British question segment on all of our podcasts between now and the 23rd of June and check in with the discussion as it's going forward. And I hope that we will be able to call upon the wisdom of all three of you at various points as we go towards that uh, mythical date. Uh, but until then, from Sam Coates, Susie Dennison, Nick Whitney and myself, Mark Leonard, it's uh, goodbye for now. We have links to all of the publications that we've been doing on Britain in Europe, including the famous Britain in Europe renegotiation scorecard that Susie has been uh, overseeing on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. You can also find some of Nick's brilliant writings about the foreign policy implications of the uh, British debate. And it remains for me just to say that um, the editor of our podcast is Katarina Botel-Atinaro and our researcher is Ulrika Franco. <laughs>